Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Connecticut has thousands of farms that span nearly 400,000 acres. And unlike massive farms across the country that only grow a single type of crop, many are small farms that have more diversified produce and specialty crops. The average age of farmers in the state is 58, just under the national average. Over 90% of senior Connecticut farmers don't have a younger person tapped to take the reins. This is according to an American Farmland Trust study. Coming up, we'll hear about efforts to inspire interest in farming early by exposing kids to agriculture in and outside the classroom. But first, we check in on the uh, 2023 Farm Bill currently working its way through Congress. And here to discuss is Lisa Hagen, who is the federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public Radio. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be back. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I want to start this conversation by first describing a little bit about the Farm Bill. So it's this package of legislation that's revisited and tweaked every five years, governing a variety of agriculture and food programs, and in large part, food stamps as well. So with that tee up, Lisa, what can you tell us about the bill where it concerns farming this time around and any efforts to expand this very important population. And just one more note, too, to clarify, new farmers are defined by the U.S. Agricultural Department as farm operators that have been up and running for under 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Farm bill, uh, it's a very important bill that I think gets kind of swept under the rug when we're thinking about Congress, but it's pretty wide-ranging, as you said. It's renegotiated every five years the last time Congress looked at this was 2018, and really an overwhelming majority of it goes towards nutrition aid. So looking at SNAP benefits, which used to be referred to as food stamp program. And so basically the rest of that goes towards agriculture and conservation programs. And so I think I'd seen a figure that this upcoming farm bill might be like over 80% going to nutrition. So um, again, vast majority of it, but still millions and billions of dollars going towards agriculture. So Lisa, can you tell us what the status of the farm bill is? It sounds like it's being held up at this point. Yeah. So it's again, because it's renegotiated every five years, we're supposed to kind of see this take more shape this fall. And so things are a bit delayed. Members of Congress have held listening sessions around their districts. They've uh, solicited feedback. And so we've seen, you know, bits and pieces of what could end up in the farm bill here and there. Really where all this stands now is that they have to just get this fully drafted, this really massive bill that will last for you know the next five years. And so uh, Congress is out of session right now through end of August, a little bit in September. So I think when they all kind of reconvene in, uh, you know, again, early September, we'll start to see more hearings, markups, and then hopefully Congress will actually have a draft of this bill, uh, especially because funding for a lot of these programs expires 
at the end of September. And so it's possible they'll have to do some maybe short-term legislation to kind of extend funding for a little bit longer. But pretty much what I've heard from a lot of lawmakers is that they want to wrap this up by the end of the year, and they wouldn't be surprised if this drags a little bit into 2024. And I know you mentioned that you're expecting or you know they're expecting this to to be done by the end of the year, but with the potential of delay, is there any sense that it could delay past the session because funding runs out in September, like you mentioned? Yeah, it's totally possible. And I think probably one of their bigger priorities is just funding the entire federal government that also runs out around that same time, the end of September. And so Congress is going to be scrambling to do that. It's very likely they do a short-term bill to, again, fund the entire federal government through the end of the year. And so this is kind of all happening at the same time. And, you know, again, a lot of these programs that the federal government has are reauthorized in the farm bill. And so we're seeing these processes kind of, you know, play out in tandem. And again, they're going to likely prioritize uh, the government spending bill. But it's possible we'll see a lot of short-term bills popping up just to kind of take them through the end of 2023. And nutrition, of course, plays a huge part of this bill. And land access is also crucial um, as a part of these negotiations. So, Lisa, I want to ask, you know, why is this so central to the discussion of expanding the pool of new and young farmers here in the U.S.? Yeah, Connecticut is really in a unique position. And you alluded to this at the top is that it's just different from a lot of these states across the country, especially in the Midwest that are commodity farmers. And so they have thousands and thousands of acres, and they're working on a lot of the times just one crop, so soybeans, wheat, and corn, and Connecticut's just really different than that. Uh, I think I've seen average size of farms is around 69 acres, so again, very different. Uh, they're also working on more specialty crops, just diversified produce just all around. I've spoken to farmers who uh, you know, grow flowers and herbs and vegetables and fruit, and so it's really different. And again, we're talking about a different climate. We're talking about a much smaller state. And that's kind of where land access comes in because it's just being able to find this viable farmland. And again, a lot of this is owned by multi-generational family farms that have just had it in their hands for sometimes, you know, again, centuries. And so it's these new and beginning farmers, the ones who've been doing it for under 10 years that are trying to break into this. And they're trying to find access to land, access to capital. And that's just tougher in Connecticut, especially with a real estate market that's very competitive. And you're also, you know, basically competing with housing developers. Well, and because you mentioned the uniqueness, which shouldn't be that surprising considering Connecticut is a much smaller state. Um, but it's also like you like you just said, you know, a lot of land is owned by generations of families. So can you talk about the just the general difficulties, too, of wanting to acquire land, especially um, for younger farmers? And are you hearing what are farmers also hoping will change? Yeah, a lot of them are just trying to uh, lease land or they're trying to actually own the land. And so being able to find it is just really tough in general. There's a specific program in the state that people have kind of compared to a dating matchmaking site. And so you're being able to partner up uh, people who own vast amounts of land and to be able to hand it off to someone who's interested in farming it. And so there's there's programs like that. There's also um, farm service agency loans 
Uh, but some farmers have told me that that while it's really helpful to kind of get people to break in and be able to get pre-approved for a loan, it's a slower process than a traditional conventional loan. And so just breaking in is really tough sometimes. And so they're doing their best to find any amount of land that they can farm. And so uh, that's why they're looking to the farm bill to try to really assist in the transfer of land and also the pre- preservation of viable farmland. And along those lines, a different kind of transfer might be happening because there is an ask for $2.5 billion to help uh, transfer 1 million acres of land to the next generation, specifically to young and BIPOC farmers. So can you tell us more about that? And also just to clarify that BIPOC, the acronym stands for Black, Indigenous and People of Color. Yeah, so what you're talking about is the 1 million acres campaign that's really been pushed by the National Young Farmers Coalition and again, a chapter within Connecticut as well. And so it's wanting Congress to spend billions of dollars to transfer basically a million acres uh, to the next generation of farmers. And so uh, it's something that Congress might be able to push through some of that money. And so I guess taking a look at legislation that's actually on the table is uh, Congressman Joe Courtney in the second district land access bill. And so it's not going to quite meet that threshold, but I think it's going to try to accomplish what that campaign is is trying to do. And so that would authorize about $100 million each year between a period of four years that would help expand programs at the Department of Agriculture. But it would really, it would basically provide direct assistance. So you would see things like uh, help with closing costs, down payments, subsidized interest rates. So it's just uh, really trying to just plow money into helping new and beginning farmers try to try to get their start in agriculture. And now we want to bring in a local farmer and also president of the New Connecticut Farmer Alliance, Liz Guerra. She's also the owner and operator of Cimarron Farmstead in Danbury. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. And so, you know, you've been listening to the conversation and we are, we're, uh, we've just talked about the farm bill just now. So want to ask, you know, what are your hopes for it? Um, because we also know there were some local Alliance members who flew down to Washington to push for land access. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was one of them. So it was myself, uh, Bill Mir with uh, Farms and uh, Susan Mitchell with Clover Farms. Um, and yeah, so we're like spread across the state. We've all bought our really different perspectives, um, being young farmers or some of us aging out of that young farmer bracket. Um, and Lisa had mentioned some really um, important points that are really unique and specific to Connecticut. Um, you know, we're young farmers, right? So accessing farmland has been a real, it's been super difficult. It was difficult pre-COVID, certainly difficult in this period, time period. Um, and our biggest, our biggest battle is with developers. Um, um, our farm is located in Fairfield County. And so, um, you know, it's it, it's more lucrative, right? When a, a developer could come with cash and pay for, you know, farmland um, and develop, make, make these huge developments, um, you know, housing developments. And, you know, in the meantime, you know, farmers are looking for land. They're looking for land to be able to, you know, create their livelihood, expand their, their production operation, and to be able to, um, you know, uh, farm for people in their community. Well, and so certainly um, access to farmland. Yep. 
Right. No, I was, I was just going to say because Lisa alluded to this, the idea that it's it's like housing too, where it's difficult to to purchase land or find land. And and based on a recent survey from the National Young Farmers Coalition, it did find that land access was the top barrier to entering farming. So what's your perspective on this in Connecticut, Liz? Is, is it unique to Connecticut? <laughs> Not unique to Connecticut. So we're uh, we're we're I'm part of this National Young Farmers um, uh, Coalition uh, Land Access Fellowship, and we're about over a hundred farmers from across the country. And it's literally like the number one um, issue. Um, myself, um, in my own specific case, my partner and I, we purchased our farm. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, um, and now as we're trying to you know increase our production area, it's you know, coming across um, affordable farmland is super difficult. It's almost impossible. Um, and, you know, there's all these like government programs that are, um, you know, are around in order to help with accessing farmland for farmers, um, you know, through FSA loans. Um, but, you know, we have folks waiting anywhere between six to eight months just to be able to go through the process. And if, you know, oftentimes we end up losing farms because we just don't have the ability to, um, you know, go through this whole process and, you know, the seller wants to sell as quickly as possible. They don't have six to eight months to, uh, you know, to wait to hear back from FSA. Um, so it does pose a huge challenge for us to be able to access access farmland as access farmland using, you know, the the programs are created by the government in order to allow us to access those programs as well. Right. And then um, talking about land access, we're also talking about how urban farming is also a really important aspect of, of this as well. But there are challenges there, too, because we know many towns and cities say they that they don't meet the definition of a farm or because of contaminated soil. Even if the farms are on a raised bed, that's not something that can be done. So, Liz, can you touch on this issue? Is this something that you're hearing about? Absolutely, yeah. So through the alliance, through the um, so we are a, a chapter of um, the National Young Farmers uh, Coalition. So the New CT Farmers Alliance. Um, you know, we have members who are you know, from rural farmers to urban farmers, and it is in fact a huge problem, right? We have some members who are you know trying to access um, you know urban farm or plots, right, and um, trying to revitalize neighborhoods by um, you know, taking empty lots and reclaiming them and uh, farming right there, there and there. Uh, it just, you know, they, there's issues with, you know, local local government, right? Um, whether they're embracing this idea, whether they, you know, they're pushing back very, very um, hard on these ideas of um, urban farming. And certainly, like, once you get past that big jump, right, that, that big hurdle, then it's actually farming on that land, which can pose, you know, huge um, huge issues, right? So certainly, like you know, contaminated land. So folks are on these beds. Um, you know, it's you know, you're kind of between uh, neighbors, right? So trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way in order for you to be able to grow as much food as possible um, in the middle of like a residential area. Um, and so again, it's you know, working with um, within the within networks here within the state, but also looking at federal agencies. Um, who can help allocate monies to help us, um, you know, help us be able to to farm, whether we're in a rural area or urban farming. And I know there have been more monies that have been allocated for specific urban farming, which is great to see, but we need more, right? There's, it's, it's, this is not new. Folks have been farming in um, urban areas for, for long, for long periods of time. 
But now we are seeing because of COVID and because of, you know, small farms are really what helped people through kind of all this food insecurity um, that we need to be able to, to, to focus and put, uh, you know, funds uh, for those kind of smaller, um, you know, urban farms as well. And Lisa, bring you back in here. We also spoke with the new Connecticut Farmer Alliance coordinator, Mary Claire Whalem, who touched on the importance of health and mental health care for farmers. So let's take a quick listen here. If agriculture is something that you want to make a career in, it's almost impossible to save the money that you would need to start a farm by working on a farm, even if that's the best way to learn. And so that's a real barrier, I would say, in our industry. Um, And the the other affordability piece that I just want to pull out is is healthcare being a big challenge for farmers. Um, according to a recent young farmers survey, which was nationwide, forty percent of young farmers identify healthcare costs as one of their top challenges, um, and it's one of the main reasons that people quit the industry. So, not only is land expensive, not only are inputs expensive, but you're not even able to, you know, give your family and yourself the basic healthcare that you need. Here in Connecticut, we did a survey last year, and according to the you know 115 of our members that filled it out, only five percent of those folks were able to access healthcare through their farm jobs, and that is crazy in a country where healthcare and employment are very closely linked together. This represents a pretty huge crisis in my eyes in the agricultural industry, and um, and of course farmers also have very specific healthcare needs. So. Farming, I think, is ranked as the eighth most dangerous job in the country. There's emergencies, there's, you know, chronic injuries. And I think there's also a lot of mental health concerns in our industry. And Lisa, that is so much to grapple with. And you've spoken with a lot of farmers about this bill. Is this similar to what you've heard from producers? Yeah, I think they're, again, especially these new and beginning farmers are dealing with a ton of challenges. And again, being able to just get the land and be able to afford it is just, again, the biggest hurdle. And that trickles down to everything, being able to afford healthcare. Um, also, that kind of ties into this is being able to afford your student loans. And this is like a program you did and uh, and trying to break into agriculture. And so uh, it, in terms of healthcare, I, I don't know if this is something that is specifically how it's going to be addressed in the farm bill quite yet. But again, it's a huge challenge and just being able to be able to get the land and start your business. How are you going to be able to afford basically anything else? And that's, you know, that encompasses healthcare. So, uh, you know, tackling tackling land access and a lot of these other issues that we've talked about uh, just ties into so many other uh, issues and challenges for new and beginning farmers. And Lisa, one more question for you here, sort of bringing back to what we were talking about earlier. I want to mention uh, support more broadly for BIPOC farmers, given their stark underrepresentation in this field. Uh, data does show that 98% of Connecticut farmers are white. So are you seeing any more support for for representation? Yeah, that's something that I've, I've spoken to a lot and when reporting out this story. And so I'd spoken with um, a big uh, Connecticut Farm Bureau, and that's 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 a huge issue that they want to push. But when speaking with actual BIPOC farmers, uh, they feel that, especially because a lot of them are doing uh, urban farming. And so I spoke to two of them, uh, Richard Myers and Sean Joseph and Trumbull. And so they feel that... Uh, urban farming doesn't get maybe the same amount of attention as just farms being started up in more rural areas. And so when you're talking about land access, they want more support for urban farming and that might, you know, lend more support and resources for BIPOC farmers. So they just want to make sure that they're also included 
uh, broadly in the Farm Bill. Lisa Hagan, federal policy reporter for Connecticut Public and the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. It was great to join you. And Liz Guerra, president of the new Connecticut Farmers Alliance, will be staying with us to continue our conversation after a short break. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're learning about efforts to grow the number of new and young farmers in the country, as well as in our state, where the average age of farmers is 58. Back with us to discuss is Liz Guerra, who's a president of New Connecticut Farm Alliance and owner and operator of C. Marone Farnstead in Danbury. Liz, welcome back. Hi, how are you all? <laughs> you can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Liz, I know you were cut off earlier, but I do want to just ask you real quickly. We heard a clip um, about the need for uh, mental health support for farmers. I would just would love to get your perspective on that. Is that something that you're hearing from farmers and producers? Absolutely. So uh, in Nick, uh, with the NCT Farmers Alliance, we created this policy platform based on, you know, surveying our members from across the state. And health care is super important, certainly Mental health and mental health needs are super important. It's something that's been flagged by farmers um, across the state. You know, farming, you know, it's it's beautiful work, right? Like you're connected to the land, but it's also can be really super isolating work. Um, you know, especially in times like now where climate change is making many of our crops, you know, uncertain, right? And we, we live on that. We live on um, you know, the, the production of all of our fruits and vegetables and whatever it is that we're making. And so, you know, when we have torrential floods like we do right now or tremendous drought like we had last year, it can, you know, your, your livelihood is based on that. And if you, you know, if you're not able to sell your fruits and vegetables, whatever you're producing at the market or wherever, um, then how are you going to make, you know, your, your next loan payment, right? How are you going to make, how are you going to survive yourself? And so there's a lot that's connected to that. Folks don't really talk a lot about it um, because it's a taboo, but certainly more and more as we, you know, kind of dive deeper with our farmers, um, that's what we're seeing as well. There's a, there's a tremendous need, and just like 
um, Mary Claire had mentioned earlier, right? It's like there's these mental health needs that folks have everywhere in the country. Not certainly, it's not unique to farmers, but certainly farmers do feel it uh, pretty significantly. And then, of course, you know, other physical, you know, medical health needs that, that folks have um, that they shouldn't have. And, you know, people who are producing food for, for their communities, um, you know, we shouldn't have those needs as well. And we will be digging a little bit deep, more deeper with the mental health aspect later on as well. And you mentioned floods just now, too. And we know that Connecticut farmers are dealing with floods as we speak. Uh, some 2,000 acres were reported damaged, according to the State Department of Agriculture. And this is a part of a larger, very much unpredictable seesaw that these farmers are on because we saw one of the worst droughts last year and then record floods the year before. So, Liz, can you touch on how climate change factors factors into your day to day and and also for farmers in the future. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one of the farm bill priorities that uh, the National Young Farmers has set out uh, for for the farm bill, certainly us as the new CT Farmers Alliance, right? It's, you know, climate, you know, cl- being resilient, right, through these uh, uncertain climate times um, and climate change. Um, I know for us, you know, there's we live, you know, kind of typical uh, Connecticut farm, which is like super hilly. Um, our native, our native plant is rocks, right? So we have like super hilly, rocky land, um, and we're constantly thinking about, you know, best ways in order to to keep, um, to to keep water on our land and also get rid of it expeditiously during times of flood. Um, trying to figure out what crops we can grow. Um, you know, we had a, in February, if you guys can remember, it was really, really warm and then it got really cold and how that's been impacting some of our, um, our plants and our, um, um, you know, our crops as well. And so there's this constant need to shift, right? You're constantly pivoting, figuring out what's out there, what you have to move around. Um, and of course, as a, as, you know, a network of, of farmers from across the state, it's, you know, talking to farmers from one side of the state to the other to see what they're seeing see what they're experiencing and how we can work out, how we can work things out together. And you mentioning crops, you know, Connecticut farmers also dealt with an abnormally late spring frost that shocked their crops. And we also just saw that federal disaster funds were just announced. Uh, we also spoke with Connecticut Department of Agriculture Commissioner Brian Hurlbert about how important stability is in seeding the next generation of farmers. Let's take a listen. There's a need, there's a recognition um, that uh, that we've got to do things a little bit differently in order to have a strong and productive um, uh, agricultural industry um, in the state for the next couple of generations. Um, and I think that's, as we're talking about the next generation and attracting new and beginning farmers, I think that's key. Um, people aren't going to want to get into farming if they don't think there's a career or a life in it. Right. And if, if you're at the complete whims of Mother Nature and you're getting 100 year floods every five to seven years, um, the, those challenges, in addition to the amount of energy and work and, and process that goes into being a successful farmer, um, is a challenge. So having a safety net that says you may fail for no reason of your own, but we will be there to support you. The, you know, the, the public policy will be that we want small and diversified farms to be successful um, across our nation. I think it's got to be um, one of the biggest uh, discussions in the farm bill.
So creating the market's important, but we need the safety net there as well. And if we don't have the safety net, then all that effort to build a farm to school market, you know, our food bank uh, program, um, our farmers market um, outreach. If we don't have farmers to fill those channels because they can't manage, um, you know, a year like this year where you had a you know, moderate winter, uh, uh, two pretty traumatic uh, frost events, a drought and a flood, you know, then it doesn't matter what farm school money you have available because you're not going to have farmers um, able to sell into that market channel. Um, and so we really need that um, a better uh, safety net and risk management tool. Um. So the commissioner made a lot of points there. Liz, curious to hear if there are any that jumped out, jumped out to you and do you resonate with that? Oh, yeah, we absolutely resonate with that. It's, it's, um... You know, it's it's one of those as a young as a young person, as a young farmer, um, you know, many of us are career changers as well and coming into this work. Um and as I mentioned, my my partner and I we purchased our farm, but uh we still have to pay a mortgage, right? We still have to pay for a home. Um, not making this work if this work is not viable if we can't um, you know, have enough in order to be able to survive, um, then that, you know, in effect, you know, it uh, it really does deter people from looking at this at this work, right, as a, as an actual career path that they can stay in and stay in for you know decades, um, and to be able to pass on to you know their family or you know whomever. Um, it's difficult, right, and especially in, in a time where you know folks have student loans, right. Um, looking at the decisions from the Supreme Court um, about student loan forgiveness, like all these different factors, and on top of that, you know. It's also very clear from COVID that um, it really was a small diversified farm that really were um, the lifeline for many for many neighborhoods. We have so many farmers from throughout Connecticut who also they did so well during COVID. Many of them were selling in um, you know local farmers markets in in their own areas, but also going down to the to New York City and doing the same and being able to also uh, do really really well fiscally. Um, but it's also because, you know, they are able to easily pivot. Um, but it's also difficult to do that when, you know, climate is just, you know, precarious at this point. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, all we can do is just plan for the, for the moment and hope that we planned. It's like the best, you know, our, our best, it's almost like in the lotto sometimes. It's like the best, our best guess for, I'm hoping that, you know, we've been able to uh, make the best uh, prediction. And we were talking about mental health support earlier for farmers, and the commissioner also reminded us that the State Department of Agriculture recently set up a mental health helpline for agricultural workers here in Connecticut, and that is uh, ctfarmstressrelief.org. And he said we do well to consider how farmers are doing and not just farms in moments like these. And I know, Liz, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, so, but I want to ask again, why is this so important to have in your view? I mean, in my view, and also when we're talking about farmers, you know, we're talking about folks who, you know, own and operate these farms, but also the farm workers who oftentimes overlook. Um, it's important because, you know, the last thing that you want is someone who's not well, right, who needs these mental health supports and don't have the, the means to access it. Frankly, even looking at finding, you know, mental health um, professionals who, um, who know what it means to work with farmers that's super important as well. It's almost like a, a niche that folks haven't really uh, looked into, but it is hard, right? Like we go through these moments of like, 
tremendous stress uh, from about February to November, and then everything's really quiet, and we're supposed to be resting um, and planning for the next season. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's tough work, right? It's physically hard on our bodies, but also from a mental health perspective when, you know, everything, there's so many things that are um, out of our control. Um, it could be really, really challenging as well. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Matthew from Portland is on the line now. Matthew, you're on the air. Hi, how's it going? Good. What do you have to tell us? Um, yeah, I, I uh, own a small farm that uh, we just started in Portland, Connecticut. Uh, it's, we're going on about 10 acres, which is somewhat bigger than some small farms, but it kind of falls right in the middle. And uh, I just wanted to bring up how... Uh, farm to institutions is a uh, something that the Department of Ag, I think, is beginning to put money towards. And uh, for us on our farm, we uh, find it super beneficial for um, being able to sell our product and uh, make money on what we can grow. Uh, a big thing that we've been place we've been selling is the uh, CT Food Share, which is a food pantry, food distribution network. Um, and they've got a huge grant of money from the state to buy specifically local food from larger scale and smaller scale producers. And it's been fantastic. And I think that uh, as we move forward here, things like uh, farm to school and farm to hospitals um, are a great way to kind of encourage um, smaller scale farms to grow in the state because farmers markets and direct-to-consumer sales have their limitations. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for calling in and letting us know your story. We appreciate it very much. And talking about local food sourcing, Liz, thinking about this larger conversation about how more people are doing that, and also with climate sustainability, uh, you and your husband are also hoping that hemp farming and processing can expand in the state. So why is hemp a part of that sustainability conversation, Liz? So I want to first off start by saying that we are hemp evangelists. We feel like hemp is, you know, in a time where there's climate change, it's uh, a totally regenerative crop. Um, and so for us, the research um, that we've done, um, you know, looking at other institutions throughout the country, but also throughout the world, to have looked to hemp, hemp in terms of being like a super green um, crop. Um, I was mentioning earlier that we had uh, to, to our friends that, you know, Orlando Sleeper, um, Orlando Sleeper Hilly, uh, but last year we grew hemp in this one area and we were turning over the land, um, a few days ago and, and the soil was beautiful. Um, you were really, really proud of, um, just the work and it was, you know, the hemp was able to really kill a whole bunch of nutrients back into the land, um, which is super important in farming, right? You're not nothing if, if your soil is not good. And so our soil health has been, um, dramatically improved uh, by adding hemp as a cover crop. Um, also, what we're doing is um, focusing on hemp for industrial purposes. Uh, and so we want to use hemp um, to create animal bedding right, as uh, an alternative to what other folks are using for animal bedding. We're looking at hemp uh, for uh, the creation of hempcrete, right? So um, it's a great um, alternative to, you know, typical fiberglass that folks use as insulation inside our homes, folks have seen um, hemp being just like this really, really powerful, um, this really, really powerful crop that has so, that can give so much and can really change the way that we live. 
um, you know, looking at alternatives, we're talking looking at offers from making straw to um, straw to drink, right? Clothing that we wear, um, hemp really can be used um, across the board um, to replace so many of the different crops or even like the different chemicals and materials um, that make us dependent on, you know, like petroleum, for example. Um, hemp really does have 25,000 uses, and we're just kind of scratching the surface. We scratched the surface back in 2018 with CBD, and now, you know, there's so many more markets that are opening up, and we really do see that, you know, Connecticut, you know, we're, we're a small state, but we can really see uh, Connecticut be, you know, the leader in the Northeast uh, for hemp and hemp production. Liz Guerra, who's the president of New Connecticut Farmer Alliance and Hemp Evangelist. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> We're going to have to have you come back and talk about hemp more next time. Definitely. Thanks so much, Pat. Absolutely. And for our listeners, you can also find more information about some of the grants that we mentioned this hour. Just go to our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And coming up, we're hearing about opportunities where we live for young people to get exposed to agriculture. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about what's been happening in the agricultural world. And here in Connecticut, there are some efforts to expose kids to agriculture. And in addition to the 19 vocational agricultural schools in the state, there has been increasing collaboration between the state departments of agriculture and education, yielding programs like Farm to School, helping connect classrooms and cafeterias with local farmers. Nearly 6 million young people in the U.S. participate in the nonprofit 4-H, and you may have met one of them if you've attended one of the state's agricultural fall affairs every fall. And the 4-H's stands for Head, Heart, Hands, and Health. Part of the 4-H pledge includes a promise to use these four things for the betterment of my club, my community, my country, and my world. Joining us now to discuss is Matthew Sirotiak, who is a 4-H alum and also a young farmer raising dairy goats at his family farm in Bethlehem, and Jen Cushman, who is the 4-H program leader at the Yukon's Extension Program. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. And Matt, sure. And Matt, I want to jump straight to you. You've been with us this whole hour and, of course, want to get your perspective on some of the issues that we've been talking about so far. But First and foremost, how did you get started? Yeah, so great question. So I was 13 year old, years old heading to a local farm to get some chickens. Um, and they had a couple of dairy goats. I had never seen a dairy goat before. And so it piqued my interest at the time. After some protesting and begging, I went over my parents and we picked them up. Um, and one of them happened to be pregnant. And so from that point on, we were very involved. And uh, none of my family had ever been in agriculture or even heard of 4-H. Um, but uh, being able to be involved in a local Yukon 4-H club, I quickly learned within a group of youth that shared that passion for agriculture. 
I love that you had to protest and beg to do this, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and we cannot have this discussion without mentioning that UConn did a profile on you that we absolutely love. That aptly called you the Goat of Goats, and the acronym stands for Greatest of All Time. For those who might not know, and now you help run a family farm raising dairy goats, and it sounds like your family is very much into it. So, can you? I know you just mentioned it a little bit, but can you tell us more about that whole experience? It's been like. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we still have the goats on the farm、uh, while I'm attending UConn, doing classes up there.、Um, my sister, my mom, and my dad all help out. We milk the goats twice a day and、uh, make soaps, lotions,、uh, cheeses, all sorts of、um, fun goodies.、Um, de- definitely hoping out to get out to some farmers markets and、uh, other you know opportunities to grow. And we mentioned 4-H earlier, and we know that it's a huge part of agricultural fairs in the fall here in Connecticut. And it's also a really huge moment for 4-H participants each year. So, can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, our club always jokes that the moment the 4-H fair is over, one year we start prepping for the next one.、Um, you know, it's not just the club, but it's also our county leadership teams that help run the fair.、Um, we all learn a lot about project management,、uh, meeting those hard deadlines associated with a fair. Members spend all years working with animals, or creating a final project in the arts, or setting up a display,、um, all to increase their knowledge and also、um, help increase、uh, public awareness and knowledge.、Um, and it doesn't hurt to see some members get super excited about placing better than they did the previous year and growing from those experiences.、Um, it's an opportunity for us to get feedback and to grow. And you know. Thinking about the issues that we've discussed so far this hour, especially when it comes to young and new farmers, can you talk about the need for more mentor、uh, mentorship in a broader space, and why is that so important to you? Absolutely. So, like I mentioned before, I never had any experience in agriculture prior to my time in 4-H,、um, and so 4-H provided me with a place to grow and to make those connections. Uh, working with club leaders who had that background and experience allowed me to grow into the field and to continue forward.、Um, now, as a volunteer myself, I act as a mentor to a lot of members, sharing with them my experiences, so we can make them better.、Um, the 4-H motto is to make the best better, and so I think mentorship is a huge, huge key in that growth. And Jen, I want to bring you to the conversation with Matt, being a, a farmer and a mentor as well. How would you say his experience is emblematic of the 4-H program? Sure,、uh, Matt's experience is certainly characteristic of the positive youth development that our UConn 4-H program provides to so many participants.、Uh, we are able to、uh, start youth in 4-H in Connecticut at the age of five. And we watch them grow and develop through that high-quality 4-H program experience.、Uh, 4-H provides youth with a place where they belong, and they're able to explore their personal sparks. In Matt's case, that was through the Dairy Goat Project area, and through hands-on learning,、uh, he was able to explore all that 4-H and the Goat Project had to offer. But also, that、um, experience has provided him with that. Um, springboard to pursue a further career uh, around uh, agricultural education and extension work. And agricultural education is just one piece of 4-H, right? You know, what are some other pieces of 4-H that people might not be aware of? Yes, so agriculture、uh, and STEM agriculture is one component.、Um, in addition to the agriculture. 
uh, project area. There are many areas around healthy living. Uh, we also have members in robotics, the arts, food and nutrition, areas like photography, industrial arts, and uh, civic engagement in the leadership components. And Matt, I want to talk to you real quickly, too. You know, you recently participated in a national conference for young farmers. Uh, can you tell us about that? You know, why why was that so important for you to be a part of? Absolutely. So I served on a national uh, leadership team for a conference held in Atlanta, Georgia. It's called the National 4-H Congress event. Um, every year we're elected. I was uh, served alongside seven other 4-H members from across the country. Um, 4-H is more than just its agricultural roots. It's also very much an opportunity for positive youth development. I would have never had to, the confidence to speak on a show like this without the 4-H mentorship and guidance that I got. And that conference instilled a lot of leadership in me and the other uh, individuals that I served with. Well, Matt, I want to say you are doing amazing, not to give you any more stress, <laughs> but you're doing great. Um, we've also spoke with new Connecticut Farmer Alliance coordinator, Mary Claire Wellen, who spoke about the importance of community among new and young farmers. Let's take a quick listen here. If you're a first generation farmer and you didn't grow up in a rural area and you're coming to farmer to farming, you know, like later on in life or maybe even as a second career, you probably don't have that mentorship, like that relationship with the farmers in your area where they can help you troubleshoot and they can, you know, you can call somebody up when your cows get out in the middle of the night and they'll like help you wrangle them up. And so that's kind of where organizations like mine come in and try to build that network for folks. Because I think, you know, as important as many of the trainings and workshops and programs that we're able to offer people, I just want to make sure that we're offering people a community and we're offering people a space where they are able to connect with other farmers and like so many of our gatherings and, you know, social events turn into like troubleshooting this cucumber pest or, you know, has anybody met a good well digger in our area who is going to, you know, help me get the irrigation set up that I need. Um, so I feel really passionate about helping farmers connect with each other. And I know that there's a lot of folks in our state who feel that way. It's a pretty small agricultural community compared to, say, Massachusetts or New York. But I kind of find that to be a strength because if you're looking for a mentor, you know, like you can find it, you can join the new CT Farmer Alliance, you can join Farm Bureau, you can connect with Yukon Extension and hopefully find somebody in your area who's really willing to um, to help you out. So I can't say I've really heard about cucumber pests and I kind of want to know more about it now. But Matt, you know, with what Mary Claire just just mentioned and you talked about community with your conference just now, you know, what are your thoughts about what she has to say? Yeah, I 100% resonate with that. The sentiment that she had in her in her remarks, like I mentioned, 4-H provided that community for me as someone who was without an agricultural background. Uh, it can be very difficult uh, to try to be involved in this space without that background. Um, so using it as an, a place to network and also bounce ideas off of each other uh, is especially important as we continue to grow. Um, we always use uh, the acronym for agriculture as AG. I kind of think of that as standing for always growing. Um, and so I think 4-H provides a great space for youth to continue to grow. And the Yukon Extension Program in general provides a lot of opportunities uh, for that you know, development and for those networking opportunities. And when we're talking about networking and community, Matt, what would you say is needed now to help sort of bring in new generations of farmers and, I have to say, more goats like you? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm definitely always looking for um, more opportunities to to spread the love of agriculture. And uh, thankfully, I think 4-H has a really awesome program. Um, you know, we allow youth to lease animals from kind of these larger farms. Um, and so kind of uh, meeting youth where they are at, at a younger age and uh, it kind of giving them that exposure that I think uh, so many of us don't have that same level of exposure to agriculture that we might have used to. And so um, exposing them young and, and letting them know what the program's about. And uh, sometimes that's all it takes to really get some um, fresh blood in, in the field. And really quickly, Matt, because you know you saw you saw some goats, and you're like, man, I wanna I wanna do that. Um, was there something during this experience that really surprised you? I definitely was beyond surprised uh, as I continued to grow into the field uh, to learn that there are so many other people just like me who who see a goat and are like, yeah, you know what? That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so I think it's definitely, uh, like I said, 4-H created that opportunity for me to meet others just like me. Um, and in the amount of science behind it as well, I think, you know, you you first start working with a goat and feeding it, and then you start thinking about the nutrition of it. And so there's so much more, it's so connected to science and to what I'm learning up at UConn now as an animal science major as well. Well, I'm sure those animals appreciate your love and care for them, Matt. And Jen, we've got about a minute left, but we'd love to hear about if you have any tips for folks who may be interested in getting involved in 4-H. Yes. Um, So for those interested in getting involved in 4-H, we certainly encourage you to reach out to one of our county 4-H offices uh, to learn more about local opportunities. And in addition to that, we have our website, and I know that'll be referenced on the website as well. And reach out, um, find out what local opportunities are. And we also have many opportunities for volunteers to engage and support all of our youth in the 4-H program. And we'll also have that information linked on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. You've been listening to Matthew Sorotiak, who's a 4-H alum who's now a young farmer raising dairy goats at his family farm in Bethlehem, and Jen Cushman, who is a 4-H program leader at UConn Extension. Thank you so much um, for sharing both of your stories with us this morning today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. you. You can find more information on the programming on ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 